The readings from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along on the screen and I'll uh, read those uh, familiar verses to you. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for another day. Lord, we realize that every day is a gift from you. That's the only reason we are able to wake up this morning and uh, take a breath and our heart keep beating is because uh, you have allowed us to do that. And so we thank you for the gift of another day. Lord, we pray that as we uh, now look into your word this morning and as we uh, continue our journey with Jesus on the way to the cross, that you will open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Lord, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Uh, thank you for the privilege of intercessory prayer to, to pray for one another. And now, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Uh, may we be like Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Uh, and so we thank you for all that you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been on a journey through the last week of Jesus' life and uh, thinking about the question, what was it like for Jesus uh, that last week before he went to the cross? So uh, just by way of a little bit of review, and then we'll get to John 17, uh, the whole matter of Jesus being crucified was really set into motion in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that miracle, as far as the religious leaders were concerned, was like the last straw for them to begin to try to look to put Jesus to death. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 53, From that day on, they, the religious leaders, plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly, Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus, after he raises Lazarus from the death in Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem, goes 20 miles north to a place called Ephraim. And he is laying low because he knows that uh, uh, the religious leaders are out to get him. Now, if Jesus' purpose was to preserve and save his life, he would have stayed in Ephraim, but we all know that Jesus came, what, to seek and to save the lost and to go to the cross. And so uh, we started out by looking at a passage in John chapter 12, where Jesus comes back to Bethany, and he's there for a party, a dinner party in his honor, by given by Simon the leper. Probably a thank you to Jesus for, for Jesus healing him. That's speculation. And so we looked at John chapter 12, and this is the Saturday before the cross. And there he is at that dinner party, and something dramatic happened in the middle of that party that, uh, as Linda talked about this morning, Mary took that spikenard, that very, very costly perfume from the, the mountains of India that was worth a year's salary, 12 ounces of perfume worth a year's salary, this 
This perfume is about four to five thousand dollars an ounce. And she breaks open the perfume and she washes Jesus' feet with her own hair. And the disciples are furious. What a waste! Why wasn't this sold and, and given to the poor? And Jesus said, Leave her alone. What she's done is done to, as a memorial uh, to me. The poor you will always have with me. And so we talked about worship and, and costly worship from the example of Mary. That was Saturday. And then we looked at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Sunday, the next day, Jesus is riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem, and it's Palm Sunday. That donkey ride was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, written five or six hundred years previous, that uh, Israel's king would come riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, and here's the fulfillment of that. And the crowds are there as Jerusalem's population has swelled about ten times to what it normally is because of uh, the, the feast that's going on leading up to the Passover. They're waving palm branches. They're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise to the King Jesus. Jesus enters on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. The religious leaders are furious in the parallel passage in Luke 19 says that the religious leaders said, uh, Rabbi, tell your, tell your followers, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out and worship me, the stones are going to yell out and worship me. And then as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, Dr. Luke writes that Jesus is weeping. He's crying over the city of Jerusalem. One of the three times it's recorded in the New Testament that Jesus is crying. He's weeping because the city has rejected him. He's probably also weeping because he knows that in about 35 years, history tells us that uh, the Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews. Jesus is weeping. Well, last Sunday, then we looked at John chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples are observing the Passover in an upper room. Now it's Thursday, the Thursday before the cross. We're familiar with this, this, this story. It was an unbelievable night. It was a shocking night. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. That was, that was un, unheard of in that day. Jesus then predicts that one of the twelve is going to betray him. And the disciples were shocked. And then he tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. And then he tells the disciples that he's leaving and they can't come with him. And the disciples are left reeling. No wonder in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus tries to comfort them. He talks about a promise and a place and a person let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and take you to be with me. That's John chapter 14. Well, we're going to have to fast forward here as we lead up to Easter Sunday. We're going to come to John chapter 17. I mentioned last week I should have started this series about a month ago because there's a lot in 14, 15, and 16. But we're going to jump to John chapter 17 and look at what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is the longest, most personal prayer recorded in Scripture of Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but having been by the bedside of um, people who are dying, and I've been there many times, oftentimes a person cannot communicate. As I'm looking at them, I'm also sometimes wondering, like, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what's going through their mind. And if they could talk, if they could express themselves, what would they say? Well, in John chapter 17, the scriptures tell us exactly what Jesus was thinking. Here's a prayer, and we're 24 hours from the cross, probably less than 24 hours. And the scriptures record for us exactly what was on Jesus' mind before he went to the cross. Jesus is praying. And so let's look at that prayer this morning. And so here's our first part of our outline. First of all, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself. Look at verse 1. We read this in our scripture reading. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now notice Jesus' posture in praying. The scriptures say he looked toward heaven. Uh, oftentimes in Scripture, that's uh, portrayed as uh, Jesus' posture in prayer. Um, when I was growing up, and I remember uh, learning how to pray, I remember being at a one of my earliest memories, being at a, a some sort of Christian camp, and I was really, really young. And I remember the, the one of the leaders there was uh, was teaching us how to pray, and she's like, "Okay, you need to bow your heads and close your eyes, and." Um, I remember the leader um, had some arthritis in her hands, and she said, you need to fold your hands. And so I'm, I'm about, this is one of my earliest memories, four or five, and I'm trying to model exactly how she's folding her hands because I'm just thinking, you got to get this just right. And, uh, and that's how you, you pray. Well, there's lots of postures of prayer in Scripture. Sometimes people are kneeling down. Sometimes people are raising their hands to heaven. Uh, here's Jesus, and he's, he's looking up to heaven. It reminds me of Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And so don't get caught up on the posture, outward posture of prayer, because what God is concerned about is the posture of our hearts. That's that's the key when we come to, to pray. Not our outward posture, but the posture of our heart. So here's Jesus. He's looking up to heaven. And here's this long prayer in John chapter 17, relatively long. Um, notice what how this prayer starts. Jesus says, the hour has come. Now, if you read through the uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, verse 4, this is Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cain of Galilee, his first miracle. And one of the things that Jesus says to his mother is, my hour hasn't come yet. John chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus, my hour hasn't come. John chapter 8, verse 20, he says, my hour hasn't come. But when you get to John 12, 13, and here in his prayer, what's Jesus saying? The hour has come. What's the hour? The hour is the cross. The hour is the very purpose for which he came. And notice notice his prayer then. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son 
that your son may glorify you. Now here we have uh, a theme that's all through John chapter 17. The word glory and glorify is used nine times. What's Jesus asking? God, would you, would you glorify me so that what I can glorify you? Notice in verse 3, um, or verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here's a verse in Scripture where Jesus defines eternal life or everlasting life. Everlasting life, as Jesus defines it, is a qualitative relationship. He defines everlasting life or eternal life as what? Knowing God. Oftentimes we think of the gift of eternal life as um, an endless life. And yes, it is. We will live in eternity forever and ever But your eternal life doesn't start when you get to heaven. Your eternal life, everlasting life, starts when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it's designed to be an intimate relationship with God, to know God. That was Paul's prayer in Philippians 3.10, that I might know Christ and and get to know him uh, intimately. And that's Jesus' desire in our lives, isn't it? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 Oftentimes it's used as a verse for evangelism, but it's really written to a church. It's written to believers. And John writes in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and have what? Fellowship with him. So it's picturing Jesus knocking at the door of our lives and basically, paraphrase, will you slow down long enough so that we can have some fellowship together? that we can get to know each other because that's what eternal life is, is it's knowing God and we will spend a lot of time in eternity getting to know God and who he is and worshiping him in all of his, his glory. And so that's the first part of the prayer. Jesus prays for himself. But then the second part of the prayer, it's found in verses 6 through 19, the longest part of the prayer, Jesus prays for the 11 disciples. Uh, Judas is already gone. So now he's praying for these disciples who are reeling emotionally because of all that's taken place there in the upper room. And Jesus makes three requests that are found here in verses 6 through 19. Um, He's going to pray for the disciples in three ways. And I'm going to suggest that this is a great way, these three requests, for us to pray for others, to pray for our kids, or to pray for our grandkids Notice um, his first request, and we're going to have to just skim through this. Verse 9, I pray for them. He's talking about the disciples that are there uh, with him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. So here's his first request. Would you protect the disciples? I've kind of been their protection. I've kind of been their rock these last three years. But now I'm leaving, so 
Holy Father, would you protect the eleven disciples? He prays that again in verse, mentions it again in verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's a reference to Judas Iscariot. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There's a spiritual battle going on out there. There's, there's evil out there. There's, there's Satan. And I want you to protect them. That's a great prayer. Uh, as I said for our kids, as we know, at some point in time in raising kids, you launch them out into the world. And uh, one of the things that we need to pray as a parent is, Lord, would you protect them? But then he also asks a second prayer, and it has to do with unity and oneness. This is another theme that's all through John chapter 17. Again, back to verse 11. Um, I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So one of the key things on Jesus' mind before he goes to the cross is what? The unity of believers. We're going to see this all through the, the prayer. He's praying that the believers would be one. So, Lord, would you protect them? Would you make them unified, give them unity and oneness? Verse 17, his third request is that would you sanctify them? The word sanctify means to set apart. Here it is. Sanctify them, the disciples, by the truth. How are we sanctified? Your word is truth. So would you set them apart? Because as I'm leaving, they've got a mission to do. They're going to hear the great commission. You need to take the gospel to all the world. And he's praying that the disciples would be sanctified, that they would be set apart for God's purpose and God's use. And so Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his 11 disciples, protect them, give them unity, sanctify them. But here's the really neat part of the passage. Thirdly, Jesus prays for all future believers. So he asks the question, what was on Jesus' mind in his Last 24 hours, well, the disciples were on his mind, that God would be glorified was on his mind. But in one sense, we would say that if you know Jesus as your Savior, you and I were on his mind. Jesus was praying for you. Look at it in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not just these 11. I pray also for those who will, future, who will believe in me through their message. So he's praying for what? All future believers, including you and me. And what is his prayer? Again, there's a dual theme here. It's unity and that God would be glorified. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. That the body of believers, the the, the church, would be unified Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to what? Complete unity. That the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved loved them, even as you have loved me. Then again, he talks about glory in his prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It's a remarkable prayer right before the cross. Jesus prays for himself. God, would you glorify me so that I can glorify you? He prays for the 11 disciples that they would be protected that they would be one, they would be sanctified and set apart for the mission God's given them. And then he prays for you and me, for all future believers, that we would be one and that we would glorify God. Well, that's just a quick overview of of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And this morning in our last 10 or 15 minutes, I want to think about what are some what are some life lessons? What are some truths that we can apply to our lives from John chapter 17? And so here's uh, here's the first one. Uh first life lesson is this. Our chief purpose in life is to glorify God. Our chief purpose in life is to glorify God. Um the sooner we understand that life isn't about ourselves, it's not about us, but it's about God and his glory the better off we will be, our kids will be, our grandkids will be. The chief purpose in life is to glorify God. And what's the predominant theme through John chapter 17? It's God's glory. Mentioned nine times. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the prophet Isaiah writes these words, I will say to the north, give them up to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, whom I formed and named. We've been created to bring God glory. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. First first question of those many, many questions. What is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're here on planet Earth. That's why um, Jesus came to, to die for our sins so we could have a relationship with him. It's John Piper that made the statement, birds were made to fly, fish were made to swim. We were made to glorify God. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, in everything you do, whether you eat or drink, bring glory to God. So the question is for us this morning is, How do we do that? How do we, if our chief purpose in life is to glorify God, how do we do that? And I'm going to suggest just a number of ways here. Uh, First of all, through our character. Through our character. Someone has said we won't become God-like until we know what God is like. We won't become Christ-like until we know what Christ is like. And so it's through the our, our characters, as Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them 
Sanctify them through the truth. And so through our character, sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like God, like Christ. And we're to, as Peter says, we're to what grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we reflect who God is and, and his character, and uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is a good place to start. Those nine evidences, those nine character traits that the Spirit wants to produce in our life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, patience, goodness, meekness, self-control. He wants us to glorify him by reflecting his character in our lives. But also we glorify God through our conduct. Not just our character, but our conduct. In fact, in John chapter 15, there in the upper room, Jesus has just told the story about the the vine and the branches. And he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You need to abide in me, you need to rest in me. So that you produce what? Fruit. And then he says in verse 8, John 15, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so a life of productivity and fruitfulness for, for, for God brings glory to him. Not only through our character and our conduct, but confession of sin glorifies God. Remember the Old Testament story of uh, Achan. He's known as Taken Achan. And here's uh, Joshua, and they're in the, the promised land. And the first victory that they win, they are to devote everything to God. Everything to God. It's the first fruits principle. And uh, we know that um, Israel goes on to battle number two. They they are defeated in Ai. And Joshua is furious. He's, he's, he's ripping his clothes in mourning because they've lost a bunch of soldiers. And God tells them there's a problem here. And it's a problem of sin. And they bring all of Israel before Joshua and they narrow down one by one the, the tribe, the clan, the family, the individual. And the problem is Achan. And here's what Joshua says to Achan in Joshua 7.19. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan says, It's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. Confession of sin glorifies God. I would add continual worship and praise glorifies God. That's Hebrews 13, 15. Let us offer up what the sacrifice of praise, the the fruit of our lips that honor his name. And so as we uh, worship him and and, and praise him, it brings him glory. Well, the second life lesson is this. And I've already mentioned it. Eternal life, the gift of salvation, is both quantitative and qualitative. That's how Jesus defined it in John 17, 3. Yes, it's quantitative. The stanza number five of Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So it is this quantitative time that goes on forever and ever. First Thessalonians 4, talking about the, the rapture, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So yes, it is everlasting life. But as Jesus defined it, 
So we already talked about it. It is quantitative that they might know God. This is eternal life, to know God. How do you know somebody, get to know somebody? It's through communicating with them. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to him through prayer. We already mentioned Paul's prayer. He says, I want to know Christ. And so there's a great hymn, uh, chorus, written by a fellow by the name of Graham Kedrick. Maybe you've heard this song. It's called Knowing You, Jesus. Listen to his words. He says, All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I've counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And so eternal life. Yes, we're going to live forever. But Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you might know God and knowing him in that deep, intimate relationship with him. Life lesson number three from John 17 is this. And Jesus was praying for unity, and and not only for the 11 disciples, but for all future believers, that unity in the body of Christ is essential to the mission and purpose of the church. Why is Jesus so concerned before he goes to the cross of unity and oneness? It's because it's essential to to our task. It's essential to the mission and the purpose of the church. John 17, as he's praying for unity, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so our oneness within the body of Christ, the unity within the body of Christ, sends a message to the unbelieving world that Jesus was sent by God into the world. Verse verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so oneness and unity within the body of Christ is essential to the mission and purpose of the church so that an unbelieving world might know that Jesus was sent and who Jesus is. There's a group of uh, churches. It's not a denomination, but it's a fellowship and um Many independent churches like ours are a part of this fellowship. It's called the IFCA. It's headed at, headquartered in Granville, Michigan. Independent Fundamental Churches of America. There's probably about a thousand of them across the United States that are associated with, with the IFCA. Um, for a while, the IFCA uh, had a little different acronym that um, people joked about. Instead of Independent Fundamental Churches of America, they said it stood for I Fight Christians Always. And... Um, 
Sometimes churches get into that, don't they? And there's, there, there's no unity, there's no oneness, there's no harmony of purpose. Unity is important, is vitally important to the mission and the purpose of the church. John 13, 34, and 35. By this shall all men know that you're disciples if you have love one for another. And so um, whoever comes into the midst of a fellowship of believers, one of the things they should leave after spending some time with them is they should be saying, my, those people really love one another. Look, look at how they love one another. And, and that's uh, important to the, the mission and the purpose of the church. Lastly, life lesson number four from John 17 is this. Intercessory prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. Intercessory prayer, that just means praying for somebody else, is an essential part of the Christian life. Here's Jesus less than 24 hours before he's going to die and go to the cross, what is he doing? He's praying for others. Even when he's on the cross, he's praying for others. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, He models intercessory prayer. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you and me that would be one that would glorify him. I remember I shared this before at our first church assignment, Strongsville, Ohio. Uh, one of our, one of my close friends was the song leader and um, was the associate pastor there for four and a half years. And I remember about a year into being there, uh, he came up to me on uh, a Sunday and uh, he said, Hey, uh, do you want to be a part of our wrestling team? And I'm like, wrestling team? What's, what kind of, you know, what kind of, what church has a wrestling team? Never heard of such a thing. And so I began, I questioned him and he says, no, no, look at uh, Colossians chapter 4 verse 12. Like, Colossians 4 12. Okay, what's Colossians 4 12? He says, haven't you ever heard of Epaphras? Like, well, if I did, I forgot. Uh, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. Paul writes, he is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Oh, he wanted me to be a part of this prayer group, this intercessory prayer group that is what? Is praying for other people. He called it the wrestling team. Intercessory prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. Who are we to pray for? Well, that's a long, long list. First Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says, uh, pray for all men, but then it specifies for kings and all those in authority. And so uh, we need to pray for those that are in authority, our government officials on the national, state, and local level. Um, anybody in a position of authority, uh, Paul says you need to pray for them. Interceding for those that are sick, James 5.14. Is any of you sick? Let him call for what? The leaders of the church so they can pray for him. So we need to intercede and pray for those that are sick. 
for the lost and the unsaved. That was the burden on the Apostle Paul's heart. Uh, the, the, those that had not come to know Christ. How about our children and grandchildren? Lamentations 2.19. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children. And so the list can go on and on and on. And Jesus modeled this here in um, his dying hours that intercessory prayer is vital. So who's on your prayer list? I hope you're, you're engaged in, in praying. Vitally important. Praying for our kids. That's where, if we're not going to pray for our kids, who is? Praying for our grandkids, and uh, as we know in in some of your worlds too, the list gets longer and longer. Uh, but we're to uphold them and to pray for them. Vitally important. Stormy O'Martian in her book, The Power of a Praying Parent, writes these words. Let me just read a quick paragraph here. Our children's lives or grandchildren's lives do not ever have to be left to chance. So she's talking about the power of prayer and the responsibility of prayer and this burden of being a, a, a parent. I mean that in a good way, a parent and a grandparent. Um, we don't have to pace the floor anxiously, biting our nails, gnawing our knuckles, dreading the terrible twos or the torturous teens. We don't have to live in fear of what each new phase of development may bring, what dangers might be lurking behind every corner. Nor do we have to be perfect parents. We can start right now, this very minute, in fact, making a positive difference in our children's and grandchildren's future. It's never too early and never too late. It doesn't matter if the child is three days old or 30 years old and going through a third divorce. At every stage of their lives, our children and grandchildren need and greatly benefit from our prayers. There is great power in doing that, far beyond what most people imagine. Never underestimate the power of a praying parent or grandparent. Jesus modeled that on the cross. Jesus modeled that in the upper room. And he prayed for you and me. And we need to make intercessory prayer an essential part of our Christian life. Well, that's John chapter 17. Our chief purpose is to, to know God and to uh, glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And we have this wonderful gift of uh, eternal life that starts right now by having an intimate relationship and knowing Him and being one as, as a body of believers as we try to fulfill the purpose and mission of our church and to be people who are faithful in praying for our families, for our friends, for our church, and all those in need. And why don't we do that right now as we close, shall we? Lord, thank you for this um, glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus, into what was going through his mind and hours before he was to go to the cross. And what was on his mind and what was on his heart was to fulfill his mission, which would bring glory to you. 
His whole purpose was to, to bring honor and glory to his Savior. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded again that uh, that is our goal and purpose as well. Lord, we pray that this morning as we gather and worship and encourage one another, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. Lord, we pray that um, this week and in the coming days, we will make it a purpose and point to spend time with you. Lord, may the desire of our hearts be to know Jesus and to get to know you more. Lord, we just uh, thank you for the uh, promise of eternal life with you someday, but help us to realize that that begins now. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in uh, intercessory prayer. And so right now this morning, I pray for every person seated in this auditorium. Lord, would you bless them? Would you comfort them? And Lord, I pray for um, the, the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren that are represented here. Lord, would you protect them from the evil one? Lord, may they come to know you as their personal Savior. Lord, may they be one. May they be sanctified and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and live out the purpose and mission that you have for them. And then, Lord, we pray for some here this morning who are here with heavy, hurting hearts. Lord, thank you that you already know what that need is. And, Lord, we commit them to you as well. So, Lord, may you be glorified in all that we say and do today. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.